little story about a disciple who studied with a master, a Zen master, for a number of years and decided to go out on his own to pursue his path. And his teacher asked him to please, on a monthly basis, send him a note about how he was doing how his spiritual development was progressing. And there was an agreement and the student sent him after a few months, sent him a note that he had realized an expanded consciousness and that he discovered that everything was really one. Well, the teacher sort of glanced at the note and threw it away. After another month, the student wrote to the teacher, I have finally discovered that all things have Buddha nature, that all things are perfect just as they are. Well, the teacher yawned and set the note aside. The fourth month or so, he got another note from his student saying, finally, I discovered there is no self, that the self is just an illusion. Well, the teacher um, kind of made a, a grimace um, and was vaguely dissatisfied, set the note aside. The last note that he got from his student was that he had discovered that the root of suffering was ignorance and that ignorance was at the basis of, of craving and attachment. And he finally had a complete realization of this. Well, the teacher threw up his hands in despair <laughs> and just stopped, uh, stopped any kind of expectation of responding to the student didn't respond at all. And a week went by, a month went by, a few months went by, and a year went by, and he still hadn't heard from his student. And he figured, well, it's time to, it's time to check in. And he did invite his student to update him on his spiritual progress. And the student wrote back, who cares what you think? And the teacher had a big smile on his face and said to himself, he's finally got it. So my talk today 
I invite you to really not care what I think on the most profound level. But I'm going to talk anyway. But with the understanding that you are the final authority, the only authority. So despite the fact that I really, I really don't care what you think, and I invite you not to care what I think, but to listen without that kind of caring, without that sense of any authority anywhere, but just an open listening. This is an introduction to the precepts, which lately I've been translating to myself, not so much as precepts, but as reminders. Because precepts carry with them a sense of obligation, of inviting a kind of obedience. Uh, they have the suggestion of being rules. And as a matter of fact, that's how the precepts originated. They were, in fact, rules, guidelines for the Sangha at the time of the Buddha. They were rules of discipline for a community that needed to live together in harmony. And to use Rich's words, humility. It was, it was a necessary set of guidelines so that the community could be harmonious and peaceful and also be in a place where they could transmit these teachings. Because the Sangha is the vehicle for the transmission of these teachings. Without a Sangha, the teachings die. We need people <laughs> to teach, to teach one another. And so it was very important that the Sangha be harmonious, peaceful, and integrated. So there were, in fact, something like 250 precepts, 250 precepts originally for the monks. And actually, there were a lot more for the nuns. <laughs> there were around 350 for the nuns, because, of course, Buddha understood very clearly that we're, the women are much more mischievous and cause a lot more trouble than the men. So <clears throat> many of the precepts were what we might call petty. Like for example, um, you were not, no monk was to sleep in a luxurious bed. They were not allowed to handle money. Um, they couldn't eat after noon. <laughs> they couldn't receive fruits 
that were larger than a fist. Pretty specific. There were a lot of them like that. What we would consider not on the order of don't kill. It's like, don't receive a fruit larger than a fist. Well, that sounds pretty petty. But when you think of it, most of the things that cause distress between people tend to be petty, <laughs> right? Oh, you, you use the towel that's meant for the hands rather than the dishes. <laughs> or, you know, the, the typical example of, I don't like the way you roll the toothpaste tube. And that becomes, you know, a big deal. Or the way you wash the dishes. Right? Those are things that, those are the things that seem to really create disharmony in relationships. Like I lived with an artist who believed that, that everything I regarded as garbage, he regarded as integral to, a, to an installation he was building. So even like a little random piece of bubble wrap that he found in the garbage, no, you, why did you throw that out? You know, that could become part of my art. So he, he would actually go through the garbage trying to find things that I had thrown out that he regarded as precious jewel art, art pieces. These are the things that, um, that create problems between people. So it isn't it isn't just these big things. So Buddha understood that, that, that it's often the petty stuff that uh, we, have to, we have to watch out for. And so as, as things, um, as people created trouble in the community, there would be a precept developed based on that particular trouble. So you can imagine if, if, if a monk took a bowl that was supposed to be for pickles and he used it for soup, oh, you know, they would notice that and take that person to task for making that mistake. And it would bother, it would bother them, you know, why he did that. And that could become, oh, well, you never, you never obey the rules, even the simplest rules. And it would just, you know, expand and expand and expand. So it starts off with that little, little thing. Buddha had the, had the clarity to know that these precepts, these these guidelines for living harmoniously with others. And that's really what the precepts are about. They're not so much about one's individual moral excellence. They're much less about my particular uh, uh, virtues, but more about my ways of relating 
to others, not just to humans, but to animals and to the natural world. Those precepts about, are about relationships. And so um, the, the precepts are kind of gifts to us to help us navigate a life of harmony, goodwill, and interconnectedness with other, with other beings. I'd like to offer a, a slightly <laughs> kind of rebellious, I guess partly because I'm a woman, um, a slightly radical maybe take on these precepts. And you never know where teachings are going to arise. This particular take that I'm going to offer today for your deliberation comes actually as a consequence of something my daughter recommended to me. She said, Mom, I know you've watched Breaking Bad before. This is a series on TV. I know you've watched, you've tried to watch it and um, you didn't like it. Uh, that was true. She says, mom, but I just watched the whole series and I think, I think you should watch it. I think you should give it another try. Well, I was completely turned off the first, the first time. It was all about drugs and, you know, reprehensible characters. Uh, how many of you have actually seen Breaking Bad? Okay, some, a little bit. <laughs> you were turned off maybe also, yeah. So I, I often these days just listen to particularly people who I love and care about who make recommendations, even though I might be averse to them initially, because I'm, I'm deliberately listening to those who make suggestions to me, because I have confidence that those suggestions are going to lead me to some insight, to some teaching. And in fact, that happened. And it actually happened in the first episode of Breaking Bad. I don't know whether those of you have watched it, but, and noticed this, but this is a series about a high school chemistry teacher, a very mild-mannered, kind of un unobtrusive, uh, middle-aged, shy, passive guy, you know, just your man on the street. It's just a very pleasant, good father, uh, just a typical nice guy. 
helpful to his students. And he, he, he's uh, diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And his situation, which I won't go into detail, leads him used to use his chemistry skills to become a drug dealer so that he can make enough money to um, finance his family's future because he knows he's going to be dying uh, soon. And so we watch the, the threshold that he crosses from being a very uh, nice guy, doing the right things by his family and his students and his friends to becoming a ruthless drug dealer who is willing to kill people. Well, in this first episode, his sort of sidekick, who is one of his past students, um, who has become a drug addict, but who is perfectly willing to team up with, with Walter White, which is his name, to cook meth, to cook, to cook this drug. And as Walter White is walking away from this sidekick, this young guy who knew him as this mild-mannered, to uh, milk-toast individual, he says to him, what's happened to you? What is, I can't understand uh, this transformation. What is going on? And Walter turns around and looks at Jesse and says, I'm awake. Whoa, when I heard that, I thought, that's Buddha. <laughs> you know? That's what Buddha said when he met his disciples after his enlightenment. <laughs> he returned to the deer park where he and his five disciples were practicing asceticism, which didn't really work for him. And he walked back to the deer park and his, his friends, his five friends says, something's, something's going on with you. you you're, you're different. And what did Buddha say? He said, I'm awake. Wow. What does that mean? So that really caught me. And I sat with that and I lived with that movement from what we would consider a good person to a ruthless killer. <laughs> And his being awake made that transition possible. My gosh. Well, I think I'm, and I'm still working with this. So just kind of travel along with me 
I'm not finished with this. Actually, I'm just in the second season, so I'm not at all finished with it. But it's, it's an amazing teaching. And sometimes, you know, sometimes the teachings are so much more impactful and profound outside of the texts. <laughs> I'm not saying don't read the discourses, don't read the sutras, don't read the vinaya. I'm not saying don't read those and study them. But sometimes there are teachings everywhere that are very profound because they are actually embedded in human life. Like when uh, you read um, an, uh, uh, an interrupted life, or you read a novel, or you see a t TV show, or you see a play, that kind of um, brings, or an opera, you know, you, you, it, it brings the teachings to life. It brings them into everyday life and transforms them from concepts into a certain other kind of reality that perhaps we can more easily relate to and understand. So for me right now, this sense of being awake is the discovery of our freedom to be bad. <laughs> this is breaking bad. I can be bad. I can break bad. I'm free to do that. That's what my awakeness tells me. Without that sense that I could, I can go in a different directions enables me to actually be good. <laughs> Because I have, in a way, being good is the choice not to be bad. And often the precepts are constructed that way. It's don't kill. I mean, there's a positive side of that. But it's also this sense, I have chosen, I have, I have a choice. Whereas so many of us move through our lives without that kind of awakeness that I have the potential, I have the possibility of going in different directions. And, and the same is true in the opposite direction. The, those who are, and then there are many stories in the Buddhist canon where killers and robbers and we, people we would consider bad become enlightened <laughs> and become the, um, the disciples of Buddha. So it can, it can go lots of different ways. So this awakeness is the awakeness of possibility. 
that I am capable, I truly am capable of being a drug czar. Actually, had I stayed in the Bronx, <laughs> that's what I might, have, I might have been forced into. I see that very clearly. Causes and conditions. That I have a choice. I have a choice to make. And so the precepts are about freedom. They're not about constraints. This is such an interesting approach because we take the precepts, actually we receive precepts, we'll talk more about that. We regard the precepts as constraints, as rules that we have to obey. But instead, we, we can look at them as expressions of our freedom to choose the wholesome the human, the healthy, that's our freedom. We don't have to go in that direction, but we could, we could. And if we actually feel like we could, like Walter White did, we also have the possibility of understanding better those who have made the other choice. We can perhaps, because we can understand how we can, given causes and conditions, we can go, we can break bad. We have a greater possibility of understanding others who we judge, who we judge as bad, as evil. So Alan Watts, and we, we've just started our conversation on the precepts, on the reminders of our humanity. Um, Alan Watts has a wonderful word for this, which is a much more modest word than uh, the phrase breaking bad, although that's pretty powerful. He calls it our inherent rascality. that there's something in human nature that we're just rascals. And we can trace all of that back, even to the Garden of Eden. You know, there's this sort of, I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know, I'm going to taste this apple. <laughs> you know, there's, there's just in that inherent rascality in us. And it's, it's important to see that, to be awake to that, and to embrace it because it provides us with our ultimate liberation. Thank you. So now we